welcome to a super special edition of Jams Radio. Unbelievably, we have Simon Felstein, who is the head of comms at Tottenham Hotspur, with us today. And I can't believe I just said that without going ah. Um, I can't believe I can't believe um, that we've managed to uh, get you here, Simon. We are so grateful to you for joining us. Thank you so much, um, and a, a huge thank you, I suppose, to Nihal as well. Um, for roping you into this. So we are joined today by Simon. We've got Oscar and Benjamin from City of London Boys and Charlie from the Manchester Grammar School. All they want to do is talk about the beautiful game, none of the politics and all of the beauty. Um, so I'm going to let Charlie shoot the first question. I was wondering what the biggest challenge was moving into the new stadium. So like, well, how long did the process take? Then also, what were the things which we don't see and the fans who moved into the new stadium didn't see new stadium in general i think it was it was an incredible experience first of all um it's not often you get the opportunity when you join working for a football club to work on a project of that magnitude and something that's going to be well it's going to be there forever it's going to outlive all of us basically and you know that every time you go to that that stadium whether you're working there or you're not You've played your you've played your part in it. So first of all, it was it was an absolute privilege to be part of it. I, I guess there's challenges along the way, but I, I saw it more as opportunities to learn because we're we're stepping into something where we're a football club. We're not used to building big pro- being involved in big projects like this from a, on a construction side. So it was an opportunity to learn, uh, expand your skill set, and I, I love to be challenged. So basically. It was that opportunity more than anything else that, that I kind of enjoyed, but at the same time, it presented a lot of challenges. And obviously, we had uh, delays on the project, and that was probably the most challenging aspect of it because it, it comes with its own negative media as a result, and you're, you're constantly trying to manage that. And unfortunately, it's matters that are out of your control because it's a building project, and, and scenarios happen that you simply cannot control. And what about like the memories? Is there an element like of massive memories that are just like buried with White Hart Lane? Like the first one that springs to mind is Fabrice Maramba. Like it's immortalised in so many documentaries and in the whole nation coming to a standstill, hearts in mouth while watching that. And is there an element of like, wow, have those memories been buried and you get to make new ones? Like, how does it work? Well, I think that when it comes to the old stadium, I think fans will have their own fond memories of White Hart Lane. Obviously, for me personally, it would be going to my first ever game there because I'm not, I don't just work for the club, but I was, I was born a Spurs fan. My, my dad took me to my first game when I was seven. I was home to Aston Villa. Chris Waddle scored once in each half. I'll never forget it. He was my favourite player after that. Um, and then obviously... you. you you build memories during your time there working there as well. I can remember my first working my first game and just being around the whole football environment in a different situation because before I was a journalist, but you working for the club, you get access to areas you wouldn't have otherwise, including you know, including the player areas. So that was Portsmouth and we won that game as well. Um, and then there's the memorable games that, that actually take place on the pitch that you always remember. Champions League football matches. Uh, beating with the 9-1 was a memorable one and obviously the last game at White Hart Lane which was against Manchester United and to win that as well was a, it, it was an incredible spectacle and obviously we, we had the ceremony that took place afterwards so I think yeah people will have their own memories of and those are the ones that kind of immediately stand out for me personally um, and then in terms of transferring that to the new stadium I think what is what has helped significantly is that this, the new stadium is built on the same site as the old one so I know with a lot of new stadiums 
clubs do tend to have to move or do choose to move to different sites. And you've seen that with most Premier League football clubs. But obviously, the site of White Hart Lane continues to be the site of our new stadium. Um, and we have also tried to keep within the traditions of White Hart Lane in terms of the way the stadium has been designed. Stands are close to the pitch and that was something that was always a big part of White Hart Lane. Um, and we've, we've even part of the aggregate of White Hart Lane when the stadium was taken down, it's built into the flooring of the new stadium. So you, when you are walking around the stadium, you're actually walking on White Hart Lane, the aggregate of White Hart Lane in that respect. And we've, we've done other aspects as well, which kind of um, nod back to White Hart Lane. So it's certainly something that isn't forgotten in that respect. Um, there's a time capsule that's been lowered into the main way West Atrium as well, uh, which has got artifacts in and uh, will be opened again in 50 years' time. Uh, including a letter from the chairman. So he'll be talking about, obviously, what it was like to be the chairman at the time of moving into the new stadium and obviously hopes and dreams for the future, I imagine, will be in there as well. So we, we've certainly tried to keep the essence of White Hart Lane inside our new stadium. So I was wondering about sort of your more day-to-day life. What mm. What's it like working for Spurs and what would you consider a tough day at the office? <laughs> I'd say working at a football club, you... No day is ever the same uh, because so much always happens. Um, I think the toughest day, I would never speak about specifics, to be honest, but obviously uh, you have to adapt in times of crisis and they're always going to be the toughest days in terms of adapting your behaviour, the decisions you're making um, and and obviously football results play a part in that as well. Sometimes that can take you out of your comfort zone if it isn't strictly football matters that result in you having these situations of crisis. But that, that again, as I said to you, with regards to the stadium, it's all part of the learning process and and expanding your skill set. So I think you can take those toughest days as experiences that you can take forward with you into your normal working life. And I think with every tough day you have, you, you take learnings from it that you want to take into the next time you might find yourself in a situation that's similar to that. So your top two characteristics that make Felstein the best comms <laughs> director, the best head of comms at Spurs. Is it a cool head? Is it patience when you find out someone's bought a gold-plated Evoke? <laughs> Players can make their own decisions in that respect. I'm never going to judge them for what they buy. But I would say that I think you have to keep a cool head in because obviously in times of crisis there are a lot of people that are impacted by things and people you know sometimes people do lose lose their heads in those situations and I think it's therefore important that you're the one um, that takes a, that takes a deep breath on it and obviously has to have the calm head to ensure that the right decisions are made and then and, and like I said before I think it's more taking making sure you learn from the experiences in the past so if you are faced with those situations again you can call on those experiences and you've assessed what what went right and also what went wrong so you can ensure that you know you, you have a better experience next time right that makes sense i was like journalism probably was a really good pre-track for the role yeah now yeah you know people rate you and slate you and and put you under scrutiny, I suppose, when you're quite a prolific sports writer. Yeah. And then... I mean, just, just so you guys kind of know my background, I, when I, was, I, I was fortunate that when I was younger, I kind of knew what I wanted to do. It wasn't the job I ended up doing. I, I, I loved writing. I loved football. So for me, it was all about writing about football. 
Um, so all of my studies from probably 12 or 13, when, you know, I, I liked playing football, I was okay at it, but I was never, it was never going to be a career, but I wanted to do something that linked to football. So football writing seemed to be an obvious choice for me. So all my choices when it came to studies and things like that going forward, um, my degree choice and everything like that was geared towards what can I, what can I do to help myself be a football writer, but also if that didn't work out, making sure that my choices in terms of subjects um, were wide enough that it, it was general enough that I could go into other areas. So my degree was English. It seemed the most, it's a core subject and it allows you, it, it supports your ambition of what you want to do, but it also allows you to look at other industries afterwards. It doesn't close you off from other areas. Whereas, you know, some other degrees may do that. Um, I then did, I then developed my degree and converted it into a, a journalism diploma, which was a six month fast track course. Um, and then after that, I was temping and working part time at Sainsbury's, which I'd done, which I'd done for six years anyway, just purely to earn some money because the idea was I was going to offer my services to as many media outlets as possible for nothing, just to build up the CV, get some, you know, build up my cuttings book. So if I did go for job interviews, say this is what I've written before. Um, and I had enough money behind me to pay for my travel, to pay for my lunches because I was fortunate to still live at home and my parents weren't asking rent from me. Um, and yeah, and you, you hope that someone takes a shine to you and therefore you start getting paid to do the work. And I was fortunate that that happened to me. And then the Spurs opportunity itself just kind of came to me rather than actually I went seeking it out. It just, I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. But I'd like to think I've seized that opportunity as a result of it. And 15 years, I think it is now later, I'm still there. <laughs> I would say so. I think you've got many young boys dream job. Um, I think Benji here would completely agree with that absolute dream job knowing all the players and getting to talk to them on a daily basis and actually being responsible for a lot of what goes out about the club mm. that that you support yeah so obviously like Spurs are, are a big club but there's somewhat sort of a lack of big sort of trophies so going like last year what was it like to get to the Champions League final especially in the way that you did and then what was it like afterwards, obviously following the heartbreak? So the Champions League experience last year was one of those, uh, I mean, it, it's something you can't, you're never going to relive it, I don't think, because you, even when you have experiences that might be similar, maybe one day we'll experience the Champions League final again, but it will never be the same as the first time unless you win it. Um, but obviously the, the whole journey there was quite dramatic, obviously, because we got the late goal in Barcelona to qualify from the group stage in the first place. And that, you know, to, to be part of those celebrations and experience that with, with everyone was quite something. And then obviously the Dortmund game obviously was a bit more straightforward in that respect. Manchester City was dramatic. Um, then obviously you had the IX game and I just, I, the IX game's a funny one because I remember we were sat in, in the press box during the game and obviously they, they went, uh, two nil up, and it's half time. And you kind of start wondering, well, look, it's been it's been a good run. We've had, you know, it's been it's been an experience. We've made the semi finals, um, and I remember we the night before I'd been out for dinner with a Dutch journalist that I know, and he'd taken us to this to this restaurant where we knew the owner, and we were sat in his private dining area. And he, one of his friends was a guy called Johnny Heitinger, who used to play at Everton. Um, Dutch international and he joined he was a friend of his so he joined the, the meal as well and then I had all my staff there as well and we just sat there 
private table it was lovely food was great tv on liverpool barcelona so you watch that the night before and it, it's obviously an incredible game because they they win four nil don't they and they, they go through and you just think you, you i think prior to that when we took off to head to amsterdam we were all assuming that it's going to be barcelona versus one of us in the final and obviously it, it all changed that night so i think it gave that belief that anything could happen but yeah, I remember sitting in the press box in the second half, and the moment we started scoring, where the press box is normally based at, at grounds, you, you are, you're in your own area, but often you might have fans in sort of either side of the, of the block anyway, and that was the case here. It was quite high up. You had Ajax fans behind you as well, and once we started scoring, it wasn't anything personal to, to Spurs or anything like that, but they did start throwing pints of beer into the press box, not aimed at anyone in particular, because you don't celebrate goals um i i don't think it i think it I, it's not good etiquette in my opinion i think you, you're there to work so you shouldn't celebrate goals anyway no one was celebrating none of the, none of the british media nothing like that but the, the odd beer would go flying into the press box and i i remember the first two goals went in it was 2-2 um on a uh on the night and then I leave, I leave my seat normally five minutes beforehand to get down pitch side because you, you're anticipating media interviews are going to take place after the game. But I also just want to be down in to see what's going on anyway because often media can generate stories based on what happens straight after a game in a tunnel or anything like that. So I think it's important to be down there to, to witness anything but also speak to any players or, or anyone that you need to at that point. Because normally after a game, the, the first interviews are always the ones with the winning team. At that point, it was still possible. So... I went down uh, five minutes before the end. It's 3-2 to them on aggregate. Um, obviously, when you're down pitch level, as you probably would experience when you're watching games anyway, sort of your mates' teams on a Sunday morning or whatever, you the view to either end of the, to, to the goals themselves aren't they good because you're not based up high. And so you stood there watching, and I remember I was stood next to the IX dugout at the time as well, and they're, they're, they're bouncing, they're, they're ready to celebrate. They think, they're going to the final and I, I suspect and so did everyone inside the stadium and yeah you just you just saw Lucas pick this ball up and hit it and you just it's all it felt like slow motion you weren't quite sure what had happened and you just the ball went in didn't it and <laughs> I lost myself for a split second and I didn't as in you you, you turn into the fan again and you just for a split second you sort of raise your arms and then you realize I'm here, I've got to do my job. So you look around you and you see all, your, all the players are darting towards the visitors at corner, and they, which you see on the cameras. And then to my, to my left, the IX dugout, which is, you know, in party mode, had all of a sudden gone completely silent. To my right, I'm looking and the away dugout where our players, our staff, our coaching staff were. It was like something out of a, like an, like an animal document, like a wildlife documentary. They were just like, wild beasts just surging onto the pitch like some of them were coming through the seats in the dugout to get through it was almost like take no prisoner they're running through everything just to get on the pitch and be part of it and you're just stood there thinking what on earth is going on it's just everyone knows Tottenham's history you talked about not winning trophies it's not something that that sort of drama isn't something that has tended to happen to Spurs in their recent history but it was it was it was an amazing night it was amazing to be part of um to be you know in such close quarters to it all and to really experience it pitch side like that. I mean, yeah, you, it's, it's stories you can tell people for years to come and it's, 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 it's yeah, it's schoolboy stuff, isn't it? It's money can't buy. You, you, you can't compare it to anything. And, and that's without even being 
you know, playing the game itself. Um, and I just remember after that that we scored and the stadium itself was so quiet. You could almost hear everything that was happening out on that pitch after that because the Ajax fans were absolutely stunned. The Spurs fans are so high up in the stand that you, you can hear them, but it's so far away. And you could, you could literally hear everything inside that stadium after that. And it, it, was, it was almost like the moment that ball hit the net, someone had pressed the mute button. And it was a totally, you were, you were almost transported to a totally different place altogether. And one that benefited us. And it was just an amazing night. So you, you alluded to the fact that sometimes it's hard that you can't be a fan. But you've uh, still got the dream job. I would say, yeah, in most circumstances, absolutely fine. But it's not often that your team makes the Champions League final. So I'd, I'd say unique circumstances. It's always nice to win. It helps. It makes the job a lot easier. You can do a lot more in terms of the content you're producing, in terms of the access you can give. Um, and it's nice to be wanted. And you're always wanted more when you're winning. So as millions of people over the world, they're all feeling the same thing as me. It's like, what do you do on the weekend? Because where is the Premier League? How accurate do you think the prediction was? Oh, was it June the 17th, I think, the Premier League coming back? How accurate is that? And also, how much are you involved in all of those sort of aspects of it? So the, the June 17th date is something that obviously all the Premier League clubs have been involved in. And that, that, that is the confirmed date. That is the date we are planning to come back and start playing football again. So that's... Um, that is the plan. Every, all, all sort of the protocols and everything are being worked towards to start football at that time. The players are back in training. All the safety assessments are being done at stadiums to ensure that everyone is ready to go for June 17th. So we, that is the plan. In terms of my involvement, my involvement, obviously I'm, I'm not involved in the decision-making of that. That is, that is decided by the chief execs who are the shareholders of the Premier League. You offer input in terms of uh, your areas so for me it's about how our stadium would work from a media side playing behind closed doors because we are entering a totally different environment that again none of us have experienced before and again it's something that from from a personal perspective it's again it's, it's being exposed to something that, that is slightly out of the comfort zone because we've never experienced it's probably something to learn from again so in a way it's a new it's, it's a new adventure in that respect but um the fact is, I think we all want to see fans back in the stadium as quickly as possible because that's what that plays such a big part in, in the Premier League and football in general. And you're ending lockdown against United, I think. We're, it's, uh, it's, our, it's our first game. <laughs> yeah, Manchester United at home. That's always been the next game. So, yeah. So, did you follow up from that? Um, I was going to ask um, the sort of media uh, aspects of it all. Um, is it a good thing? Um, can you take the positive from everything that's happened in terms of you must have been trialling with loads of different new content and different outlooks. You're probably a lot more on YouTube and on basically a lot more on the social media to still give the fans something. So you're going to carry on a lot of that into when the season restarts. I, th I think we've always, I don't think it's changed the platforms that we're using. So we've always priority, you know, in terms of social media channels and everything like that, that, that they've always been a priority. We want to grow our numbers uh, you know, to continue to show our content to fans. I think, I think what is what changed during this period more than anything else is the way that we captured the content. Because normally, when the content is captured, it is face to face. Everyone's in the same room, and what you're seeing with a lot of content that teams are capturing now is via things like Zoom, 
where we're actually having to put all the players on a video call together and, and adapt the content so it can work in that situation, even though everyone is not in the same room. And I think I think clubs have produced some really good stuff out of it, to be perfectly honest. And I think we, we've been at the forefront of that. And even just the way we conduct interviews with, with uh, outlets outside of our own club. So your broadcasters like Sky and everything like that, again, video conferencing has been such a big part of that. And te- without technology, I don't think we'd be able to do anything as well as we have and I don't think that's just football clubs I think that's just the way all of us have coped with lockdown if if technology wasn't at the stage it was and we were just at home we didn't have laptops we didn't have video calls to see what our parents our children are doing uh, during this period when you actually get to see them again I mean it's just I mean it's just incredible isn't it you at least you can still see what people are looking like you still feel like you're connecting with them and that's a big part of technology more than anything else. It's been remarkable. And I think that's, that, that's helped a lot of people cope, particularly those that have been on their own, I guess, during lockdown. Yeah, it sort of kept everyone together in as much as the beautiful we game. We take it for granted. We, we take technology for granted sometimes, I think. But, you know, the, the ability to have wireless internet in all of our homes so we can do things like this, even though we're on lockdown. You know, Charlie's up in Manchester, Oscar's down in London, and yet everyone still feels like we could be sat in a room together right now and talking and I'm in Bournemouth. Bournemouth, there you go. There's something about football over more than any other sport that brings out the best and worst in humanity. They're just, the, it brings out the very best in people and then you get some really bad fans and it brings out the very worst in people. But there's something just magical about football itself that makes it happen. And what is it? <laughs> it's different to every person, isn't it? But it's, I suppose it's that desire for your team to win. It's tribal, isn't it? I mean, football in general, you look at other sports, it doesn't take much to play football. As long as you've got something to kick, you've got a couple of things to act as posts and it can be played with with as many or as few people as possible. So you can do it with, you know, two of you, you can do it with one of you against the wall. So it, it costs very little and it requires very little in order to do that. Anyone can be involved watching it, playing it, being part of a team, you know, there's the exercise element. There's there's so many emotions involved and the tradition that comes with it as well. From I don't know about you guys, but my my football allegiances come from who my dad supported, and I think that's, that that happens to a lot of people as well. Um, it's inclusive. You know, you, some of the skills involved they just they dazzle people, don't they? And it's it's so easy on the eye. I think. Yeah, I think it's also global because, like, yeah. when you're on the news, if you're looking at like. Um, Oxfam adverts mm-hmm. and, and you've got this a child in Africa dragging water from up there in a football shirt mm-hmm. and you know it's global and you're looking at you know the Iraqi war and, and victims and um, prisoners yeah. of war and they're in a football shirt Agreed. What, anywhere it, however little wireless they've got or access to the internet somehow football just seems to go global and and get into every nook and cranny. There's just something about yeah, the game. It's not, it's, not, it's not just football being global. It's, it's, it's the Premier League in general. It's probably the most global league in the world. You've got, like you say, countries like that, countries everywhere. They all want to support a team in England. The Premier yeah. League has created this product, which um, is global because of the types of stars it has, because of the types of facilities it has, the, the, the nature of the football. It's attacking. It's... It's exciting. It's worth watching. You can't say that about every league, and so that conti- and that's why people continue to drive to come. You know, it drives numbers to, to yeah. Premier League football rather than any other league in the world. And you will find planes from Israel packed at the time of, of any game. <laughs> we were on a flight yeah. 
on the um, we were on flight to Israel after the uh, Liverpool and United game. We're in one week, <laughs> and literally, you know, instead of the usual 500 ultra orthodox Jews going to a wedding or a bar mitzvah, we had a plane full of Israeli football fans who had managed to get over and catch two big games in a week. It was just like, all they were doing was like, you know, whether it's Tottenham Hotspur or Liverpool or uh, United, they're just completely football crazy, which is, is brilliant. You mentioned your father briefly before and his role on your life. I was just wondering if you talk a bit more about your identity and how particularly being Jewish has influenced you, if at all, like throughout your career. Ooh. That's a hard one. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I come from a Jewish family. Um, my, my dad and my mum are both Jewish. I, growing up, it's weird with me personally because I feel that from, from my, a religion side, I've probably come further away from it as I've got older, in all on, being completely honest. My wife isn't Jewish, for example. Um, but growing up in general, my, my, my dad went to a Jewish school. Um, I had the option... I, I think it comes for me. I think it comes more about the people you mix with growing up as well. And I, at primary school level, I never I had friends that were from all faiths. And so when it came to choosing a secondary school, I could have been the first intake at a, Jew, a local Jewish school, or I could have gone to the normal school that everyone else was going to. And my my parents never put any pressure on me, and they simply said, "We want you to be happy." So my choice was to go to the school where all my primary school friends were going. And even my Jewish friends were going to the, the other secondary school and not the Jewish school. And so I've always been surrounded by mixtures of people, Turkish friends, uh, Italian, Indian, or Muslims, or whatever. I just, and, uh, and, I, and I like it like that, if I'm totally honest. I like to be surrounded by a variety of people because you, you learn different things from, and diff- different ideas from different walks of life. That's not to say that I've, I've got two children and I've got a third one that's hopefully it's due any time now. So I'm hopefully she's not going to drop whilst we're on this call. But the fact is, I don't want them to, I want them to know about where I've come from, uh, but it would be totally their choice how much they would want to um, take an interest in the religion. And I would take, and I, and I would support them in anything they want to do. And that, that's exactly what my parents did with me. They very much were like growing up. I had my bar mitzvah. I obviously I can read Hebrew and I, I I had my, I did all of all of that side of things, but um, so that's from a theory perspective. From a, but from a practical level, I, I did move away. I'm I'm not going to lie, but I, I my parents always left it down to me. Always left it down to choice, and I would do exactly the same with my children. To be honest, I, I played Jewish football. Funnily enough, growing up, I played a lot of Jewish football. So I I, I have a lot of Jewish friends off the back of of things like that. But I also played church football as well. <laughs> Cause I, what, what even is that? Is that like tombstone football? What, what do you no, do in church no. football? <laughs> church, there are churches that have their own teams, and one of my friends said, "Would you like to play for us?" And I was like, "Okay, fine." It was a good. It was a. It was a good standard. We had um, our striker who played up front for us was one of the. I don't, I don't know how much you know about them, the F two freestylers. One of them played for us. So Jeremy Lynch, I I played with for three years as well. So I just I just, I like meeting people from different backgrounds and learning all about them. I mean, the, the ironic thing is the reason I'm doing this today is through Nihal, who is definitely not Jewish. <laughs> no, but he did the best uh, interfaith talk with us and apps has so, is so well-connected yeah. Jewishly. But interestingly, the culture that he was describing as a Sri Lankan 
it's so similar um, oh, yeah. to the Jewish culture. That's just so cohesive. It's yeah. like, if you're a Jew and you've got Jewish heritage, you will always find someone that will have your back somehow, somewhere. It's just like a, a club. It's true. It's true. It's family, family orientated. Um, and we all love our food. Yeah. It's and they're crazy. the only ones chutzpah enough. Like they're the only ones that have got enough chutzpah to chutzpah, be a city yeah. fan sitting in the United stands because it was a cheaper ticket <laughs> <laughs> and holding everything together not to celebrate when their team scores because they're in the wrong, you it's know. True. It's true. But I, even now, I growing up, I was fortunate because like a lot of my parents' friends lived on streets close by so i had a lot of jewish friends growing up even though i I had other other friends as well but i'd probably count about five people that i would call my jewish mothers as well so it's a very tight-knit extended family as a result of that so but it's it's lovely it's wonderful so i just want to go back sort of before asking this question you're talking about football as a sort of global game what's it like having a player like jung min son who's like sort of single-handedly half of South Korea, I think, supports Spurs just off of him. What's it like having someone like that at your club who can bring in a market like that? I think, first of all, whenever you sign a player, you, you sign them because of what they can bring to the team rather than the... I think the market appeal that it ha- that they, a player like that has is, is secondary. But it obviously, is it, it's a massive pull. And I mean, you, you look at Sonny and it, he's a very down-to-earth character. Uh, you wouldn't believe you could walk out somewhere, you could sat, sit and have lunch with him or something, and then you walk out of a room, you know, nice guy, very normal, and then all of a sudden you walk, you come out of somewhere and walk into a public space. You go left, he goes right, you'll walk down the street and not be bothered by anyone, and he's literally just going to get mobbed. And it's just, it's incredible. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't know if you've come to any Spurs games, but you, you can the number of Korean flags we now have in our stadium from fans that they travel so far to see him. He's... He is their Beckham. He is an icon there. And they, they are so proud of him as well because he has achieved so much. And I think he offers he offers hopes to all of them that they that it is possible to live your dreams and play in the Premier League. So, yeah, and, and, and he's, he's just a nice guy with it as well, to be perfectly honest. But, yeah, I mean, look, you... The fact is, anytime you go, you go to anywhere in Asia, and even when we, we went to Los Angeles a couple of years ago, we took Sonny to the... Um, Korean call to their career town and he just got absolutely mobbed it was incredible but he's so you wouldn't if you didn't know him you wouldn't believe it it's the simple fact the characteristic of just being down to earth I mean when Charlie said he says he's from Cheshire you only have to ride your bike through Cheshire and you can quite literally bump into one of 20 players who would be mobbing could be mobbed it's the way they react Mm. to the public isn't it and their fans I mean with Sonny, you, you, he is the one player who you will have Korean fans outside the training ground every day waiting to catch a glimpse of him. He'll come out, he will sign every autograph out there for them because he knows they're, they're there. It's genuine. They're there to genuinely get a picture and photograph with him and an autograph as well. Um, yeah, it's just, there's just no, there's no edge to him. There's no arrogance. He's just, he's a happy chappy really. He's, he's, it's great to have him around. He's, Previously, he's brought um, Korean food in for everyone. He wants everyone to embrace the culture and everything like that. He, he offers something different to the place, but he's always, always with a smile on his face. He's great to have around. Um, my son absolutely loved football. No father came forward. 
Um, so I did and have now for the last five years managed the Maccabi team. Ended up playing on a women's team myself. Now, one thing I've learned, I just figured when this happened, it's managing kids. If a bloke can do it, I'm sure I can, you know, take it on, bring it on. Had a friend teach me the offside rule and suddenly there's not a thing, not a thing about football. Um, I'm not watching and, and not engaging in. But one thing every kid can do is celebrate. And I want to know how we get the players to actually get them to completely copy skills and work on talent. You ask a kid to celebrate a goal. If you would see the kids that I manage celebrate a goal, I mean, they kiss their badges. They, you know, they will copy every one of their favorite players' motions and everything. And then you want to teach them skill. And it's like, why can't you do that and copy them? So I'd like you to go to all the players and come up with a way to make that happen. What is it about celebrating goals? If you've ever scored a goal, which I, I played right back for a number of years, so I didn't score many, but it's an amazing feeling to put the ball in there, isn't it? I think to make it, it's the it's the ultimate contribution to your team if you can score, a, you know, by putting the ball in the net because it makes a different, it, it makes the biggest difference to it to the result of a match. So I think to, it doesn't matter if you're on a team and someone scores a goal, you all want to join that celebration, don't you? Want to be part of it? It's that it's it's an amazing feeling which I don't think can be replicated in any way, shape, or form. And so you, when you're feeling when you're feeling that jubilation, I suppose you want to <laughs> you want to mark it in certain ways. So you think, well, you know, why don't we do this? Have a bit of fun with it and whatever. But you know, so you can have some real real fun with goal celebrations. Is probably the reason why because <laughs> you behave in a way that if, if it was any other time or any other mood you were in, you would think That's stupid. I would never do that. But football and goals do that to you. Yeah, from like the Peter Crouch robot dance, which I was reading about last week, and actually how it started was that he was dared to do it, um, from taking shirts off, which now they can't do, to having messages on your shirts, which somebody got penalised for only yesterday, um, given the current political climate and what's going on worldwide. And it's just like, it's just, I just find it the funniest thing, how however young the child is, and I've managed them since they were six, and they're now 11, um, they will not miss a trick when it comes to emulating goal celebrations. And yet... <laughs> but, but at the same time, I think a lot of them do try to recreate great goals they've seen as well. So... Oh, for sure. What, what are they called? Goals on the weekend. And yeah, the Maradona. Want... Is it the Maradona? That... Oh, they're all... The Hand of God. <laughs> I wouldn't want them recreating that. But I mean... Oh, just... God. <laughs> I actually remember that game. <laughs> yeah, of course. But there's always goals that you will see and they will do anything to replicate it. Obviously, then they'll couple it with the goal celebration that follows it but you want to it always feels better if you can you can achieve that goal as well at the same time yeah for sure that that's what's in it so the boys in front of you are the future leaders um of, well, this, this is why i'm here i'm i'm, I'm schmoozing them for any favors i'm any going forward well, they're the future leaders they're, they're the football fans so we're really really um, grateful to you thank you so much Simon I know it's a, a, been a really big ask and it's not something you do um, so easily but we're really grateful but they are the, the future army they're the future leaders um, and I think lots of them maybe after your job when you get a few more grey hairs and your kids are, Fine. Fine. <laughs> are older I'll keep, this, I'll keep the seat warm <laughs> I think you might need to there's Alex there thinking got my eye on the ball <laughs> I can see him really we're so so grateful to you for joining us and giving us your time it's been so a breath of fresh air to be able to just have a really good schmooze as you say about football um, and just the beautiful game and, and not any of the um, rubbish that can so often go alongside it just nice to chat about the things that intrigue every young young boy and girl Thank you so, so much, Simon. Have a brilliant day. And thank you again for joining us. It's been absolutely epic. No problem. Look after yourself. You'll stay well and healthy, okay?
Thank you. You too. See you. Take care, guys. All right. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Thank you very much to everybody for listening to today's Jams radio show. Stay tuned for more shows coming your way. Jams Radio is run by young Jewish student leaders and UJIA are proud to facilitate and support this programme. We are dedicated to bringing you a range of voices and guests to inform and entertain our listeners. The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast are those of the guests alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of UJIA or our partners.